Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and the co-host is Dr. Kenneth Howell, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And uh, I know some of you are hearing us on radio, some of you are listening to us on internet. Please, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, your thoughts about the program, chnetwork.org is the website for the Coming Home Network, or deepinscripture.com is the website for uh, the program. And uh, Ken and I have been working through the gospel, excuse me, the, uh, the epistle of Romans. And uh, we've, we've worked our way all the way up to chapter 13. If you haven't joined us in the program previously, you can go to the website and all the archived programs as well as our worksheets that we've used are there. And of course, our encouragement is for you to get the courage if you haven't already done it, or if you need one, is to start a local scripture study at your local parish. Just gather a couple of you around the, with your Bibles around a cup of coffee and, uh, and use our discussion as some ideas that might uh, help you uh, in your discussions. Uh, I know, Ken, that you know, you're perfect, but I know I'm not. So, uh, uh, you know, our comments are meant to help, but we're not claiming that we're the the last word on any of this. We're not We're not the magisterium. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And actually, Ken, that's a good point, because I think that that interacts with the email that we're going to uh, look at first before we get to the text. Um, and the email comes from Cecilia. <clears throat> who asks, Dear Ken and Marcus, last week you discussed a series of exhortations by St. Paul to the Roman Christians. Last week we, we finished up chapter 12. How they were to live together and in relation to neighbors outside the church. How eternally important were or are these exhortations? Were they merely suggestions, quote, or crucial criteria for salvation. If we fail to live this way, are we in danger of losing salvation? And she's in Christ, Cecilia. And that's, I'm glad we have this email because it makes us, Ken, pause for a bit and takes a step back from what we've been studying. And um, it kind of makes me recognize some of the baggage that I bring along with me from my background. Um, as a Protestant for the first 40 years of my life, brought up Lutheran, catechized, confirmed, and then follow, fell away in college and then had a, quote, born-again experience in my early 20s, and then that was in a congregational church. So already in my own journey, I was having my Lutheran understanding of the faith was being challenged by a new kind of a charismatic, independent congregational way of understanding what it means to be a Christian. And then from there, I began reading evangelical writers like C.S. Lewis and John White and G.I. Packer and InterVarsity, and that began shaping my understanding of what it mean, meant to be a Christian. And then as I graduated from college, Ken and I went into uh, a way to work as an engineer, finding a local church. I joined a Reformed church, so I had a new kind of way of understanding what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant, what was important. Um, I began working with Young Life, and all of a sudden I found myself in a leadership role leading young teenagers, 
to faith in Jesus Christ, and I was communicating to them what was important and how to live in relationship to Jesus Christ. And then in time, I heard a call to seminary, and I went to Gordon-Conwell, which is a non-denominational, interdenominational seminary, 46 different denominations represented. And the result of that is our theology classes were a mile wide and an inch deep, if you will, because we couldn't talk about sacraments and ecclesiology. And so my, then I became a pastor and all that. And my point being, <clears throat> you know, our, these different theologies you pick up along the way shape how you understand the words of St. Paul and how important they are. Are they merely suggestions? Oh, yeah, this is the way we ought to live. But in the end, if I don't live that way, what difference does it make? And Ken, I don't know if you had some of the same struggles in your own journey, mm. uh, you know, in the different paths you took in your Christian walk. You know, how do you take these words from St. Paul? Yeah, it's a, it's a perplexing question because we can, all, in any statements that we read in the Bible, we can take them, you know, with a degree of seriousness that is literalness or otherwise. And, but I, I think the, the question um, comes down to what type of literature are we in here? We are in what's called the paranesis or the, in Greek, the, this is the, it means the exhortation section of Romans. You may remember, um, our audience may remember what you and I remember well, uh, that is that Paul has been developing this argument about what the gospel is and that salvation comes um, by the grace of God um, through faith, but it's faith that, to use his language in Galatians, works itself out in love. Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul is doing in chapter 12 when he gives all these wonderful things. He's talking about how to live the, the new life in Christ, the sacrificial life, um, how to live it out in everyday experience. And so I presume that Cecilia is referring to the commands uh, that are implied in the latter part of chapter 12, uh, particularly verse 9 and following, where Paul talks about brotherly love and preferring one another in honor, rejoicing in hope, persevering or enduring in persecution, uh, exercising um, uh, hospitality to those that need it, uh, blessing those who persecute us. So um, Paul is here now showing us, you might say, the map as to how we live out the, um, the Christian life after having come to this place of relationship with Jesus Christ uh, through the ministry of the gospel that is administered and preached by the church. And so in that regard, it's a little bit like the, uh, the, the children of Israel after Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. As he comes down from the, uh, the mountain, they are faced with a choice. Do they now live in obedience to these commandments or do they not? You mean they, you mean they weren't called the Ten Suggestions? <laughs> yeah, well, how about that? Actually, interestingly, <laughs> in the Bible itself, in the Hebrew um, Old Testament, they're actually called the Ten Words, <laughs> the, the Devarim. These are the Ten Summary Commandments, which, as we will see in chapter 13, Paul, like our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, 
uh, summarizes the law under two commandments, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why I always hear in a Catholic church, in a Catholic context, uh, the two great commandments of, of loving God and loving neighbor. Um, Paul is sort of specifying what that means. And not all of these are really commandments in the strict sense of thou shalt or thou shalt not. For example, in chapter 12, verse 15, he says, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. In other words, living a life of empathy with those around us. And that's not really something you can command, but he's saying that's an ideal that you should be searching for. But on the other hand, I think it'd be false to say that these are sort of somehow optional, that we really don't need them. This is what we do to show that we are the people of God in the world, just as obedience to Israel, to the commands of God, the Ten Commandments, would have made Israel distinctive as a people among the ancient Near East. Yeah, I, um, Ken, I, this gets me back to why it is so important to understand that our Lord Jesus intended a church, that it wasn't merely an add-on, it wasn't merely a bunch of people finally getting together and saying, you know, we got to get this thing organized. That, that, it was, yeah. That, yeah. That, that the continuity of the people of God, the Old Testament, the family of God, the children of Abraham, the continuity of God's people all the way to the church was the fulfillment of what Christ was pointing to when he was talking about the coming of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's so important because the idea that it's up to each individual person, each individual Christian to decide whether this verse is important or not, that that idea was, was never the, uh, intended or that the Bible alone, uh, to each Christian conscience, was never the intent. And it, it, I, I really don't think it was Luther's intent or Calvin's intent that that would be it, but that's what's no, grown. I think that's right, yeah. And oh, I, yeah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, with that, just to pick up on that, that particular point, remember the story in Matthew 22 when the the uh, law, the expert in the law comes and says, teacher, which commandment is the greatest in the law? When we have many, many commandments of God, it's natural for us to try to to say, well, which one's more important than the other? And notice that the very question suggests that Jesus being known as a rabbi among the Jews of his day, that already implies that it's not just an individualistic answer. In other words, we're asking, we're debating. And in fact, years ago, I, I remember uh, memorizing a, a, a song. There's a song in Hebrew, and it's uh, called Zeklal Gadol Gadol B'Torah, the greatest commandment in the in the laws. Basically, it says, "What's the greatest to Torah? In the, in the Torah, what's the greatest of all God's commands?" And that's what this man is asking Jesus. Apparently, a very common question for the rabbis of that day. So there already is the idea of a communal understanding of the of the law. Yeah, and uh, when we look at these verses, how we ask the question, you know, are they necessary for salvation? Uh, subtly behind that question might be, well, what's what's the minimum I need yeah. to do? Um, mm. 
you know, when it all comes down to said, and, and if I died tonight and I stood before God and he asked me, why should I let you into my kingdom? Well, as a, as a Protestant minister, my particular theology was, well, I would point to Jesus. And, and, you know, he died on the cross. He's my Lord and Savior. He's paid all the penalty for my sins, the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And so that's how I would get into heaven because of what Jesus did. And the problem with that theology, it's good, but only so far, because that really isn't what all that Scripture says about our call to be holy, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be led by grace. Um, You know, the grace that we've received is what opens our mind and then forms our conscience and gives us our will, the strength to, to live by conscience. And so... Um, it isn't just pointing to Jesus as if, you know, think about a father and a bunch of sons. And so, uh, you know, if I stood before my father and he says, well, what have you done? And I just point to my big brother and says, well, just look at him. They just ignore me. No, <laughs> you know, we have a responsibility. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And Ken, it seems to me that, that in a way, chapter 12 and 13 are kind of like a sandwich. Uh, they mm-hmm. begin and end with similar ideas. They do, exactly. They, they begin with the idea of our life being, a, our whole life, body and soul, being a living sacrifice, all that we are, to God, as we live corporately one another. And so therefore, our mind, our conscience, needs to be transformed so that we understand what that means, how we are to live. Uh, you know, what's, what it is about us that needs to be set aside, what it needs that we need to put on. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians, you're putting on and putting off. Galatians, or excuse me, Colossians, putting on, putting off, the new man, the old man. Mm-hmm. And so this is what transforming our mind is, what it involves. And then at the end of 13, In verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He kind of comes all the way around to say the same thing in a different way because of what he says in verse 11 and 12 of verse 13, because he says there, besides everything that he said, beginning with verse 12, chapter 12, 1, all the way through chapter 13, leading up to the end of 13, besides all of this, he brings us to this issue that our emailer asks. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Because the issue is that we will stand very soon before God, accountable for what we've done with this grace we've received, how we've lived it. And we cannot say, oh, I didn't know. Because he's telling us. You know, owe no one anything except to love one another. Or last week we looked at, hey, he said that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We can't say we didn't know it. We've been told. We are not invincibly ignorant of what it means to live a Christ-centered life. So we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to imitate him. If we need to know how to live our Christian life, it's about imitating Jesus Christ. And to make no provision for the fa- for the flesh. No provision, he says, for the flesh. We aren't to gratify its desires. 
Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that's what he's been talking about in chapter 12 through 13 is the, the, the meat of this sandwich that are important because this is how we fulfill, as you mentioned last week, Ken, that behind everything that we're looking at in Romans 12 and 13 is the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. It's all, that was what formed Paul when he's away in Tarsus for 11, 12, 13 years trying to understand what this new Christian faith is all about before he goes on the road as a missionary and comes back and gets the hand of Peter confirming his apostleship during those years in which he's reflecting on the old and the new, putting it all together, he realized that the perfection our Lord talks about in Matthew 5 is exactly what Paul's detailing here in chapters 12 and 13. Yeah, I think that at the very end of chapter 12 that we talked about last week, that's where you see this profound call, a, a sacrificial call to go beyond what we would expect. Justice demands that people be paid what they have earned, whether good or bad. But what Paul is saying here in, this is about verses 17 to the end of chapter 20, that um, bears on Cecilia's question, is he's calling us here to imitate Christ and ultimately the Father. Mm-hmm. When our Lord said in Matthew 5 that the Lord, that the Father, the God, causes his reign to, to fall on the just and the unjust, and that he is good to all, Paul is saying we should be good to all, even those who are opposed to us. And we should do so by because this shows the very love of of the Father. This is what he means by uh, later in chapter 13 that we'll talk about, where in verse 12 he says that we should put off the works of darkness and clothe ourselves with the armor of light. And I like that military mm-hmm. image. What What is the armor that the Christian soldier should uh, wear? Well, it's these virtues. It's the virtue of mercy. It's the virtue of love. It's the virtue of obedience. These are the real weapons that are going to do it. You know, and it reminds me that I was talking with a friend recently with the threats of radical Islam that are out there. Um, Serious observers might even ask the question, will Western civilization endure? And there's actually a Catholic deacon, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book about this, um, in which he says, more important than, you know, the armaments, the physical weapons and protecting our country— or let's say the Western world from radical Islam, more important is the belief that it's worth protecting. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we're not convinced that that we have something here and that we've been gifted by God with something that is worth protecting, there's no there's no reason not there's no reason to protect it then. Or conversely, if we we've got to come to grips with this, do we want a society and that is um, that is overrun and it is taken over, or a society that is just completely godless. Is that the kind of society that we want? Or do we want a society where people at least are trying or striving to live virtuously in such a way that they want to please God and they want to have a good society? So the implications of Paul's words here are very far-flung. Yeah, they are, Ken. I, 
you know, I'd like to read that book that you just you mentioned uh, because, <clears throat> you know, our culture has gone back and, and uh, painted the Crusades as a negative thing. Um, yeah. uh, even the Inquisition as a total negative thing without understanding the history of either of the events. But the, the truth is that what we're experiencing today in many ways is the continuation of that same battle that was started 1,500 years ago. Um, certainly true. And, the Crusades, yeah. You know, yeah. and then, you know, if we look at the Crusades <laughs> and what they temporarily stopped, um, what would, then we see what happened to France, uh, what's happened to Western Europe, uh, what's happened to American culture, um, based on some of the same ideals that led to the French Revolution, um, and where we are today. And the question is, you know, do we fight for Western civilization? What is left of Western civilization? Is it in fact a Christian civilization? Um, and what we we hear through all those those thousand years, we hear voices calling for corporate and individual renewal. And in a many many ways, halfway between the rise of Islam and today was the Reformation to a certain extent. And there were voices calling for renewal long before Luther, Calvin, Catherine of Genoa, and others were calling for sure for, calling for renewal in the church as in, in individual lives. And in many ways, the the what Luther was calling for were completely justified because you had a lot of individuals, uh, Christians in the churches that didn't know their faith at all. They didn't mm -hmm. understand the Latin Mass. They didn't know what was going on a Sunday. They didn't. So they were looking for external ways to grow in their faith. And for many of them, they didn't even know the stuff that we're talking about here because most of them couldn't read. Most of them didn't have a, a Bible sitting in their lap like we can study now. Uh, so, you know, the, these same commandments um, that we see Paul calling the first century Roman Christians to are as valid today uh, because, as he says in, in verse 11 of chapter 13, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Exactly. Uh, it, it could be tonight. And we will stand before God for how we've lived out our faith. And there are there are great shining lights in in the uh, in the last thousand years, Ken. And one of them that I think about in verse twenty of chapter twelve, uh, um, this idea of you know the vengeance is mine, and uh, and what do we do with our enemies? That you know everything we did after World War II was isn't good. We, we, it's not like America and and the Allies were all holy, but there there is some sense in which there were many people that reached out to our enemies during that time who were starving, oh, yeah, struggling, right. and and we gave food and we didn't just um, in, in a way in many ways the way Lincoln intended to be the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, there was the intent was to be healing. And right, of course, after right. the death of Lincoln, it didn't exactly turn out the way it was intended. Mm -hmm. uh, but there have been many trying to live out these virtues. Yeah, that, that that's an interesting example, especially Germany now. 
because uh, Germany today has one of the most uh, vibrant economies in all of Europe. And they have what was after the war called the in German called the Wirtschaftswunder, which means the economic miracle that they came back. Um, and that was for two reasons. One was just that the Germans culturally tend to be very industrious people and hardworking. But the, the other factor is that there's no doubt they could not have they could not have achieved that without the help of the Allies trying to help reconstruct Germany. So it was reaching out. Just as Reconstruction was <clears throat> designed to help out, help the South recover after the Civil War, as you say, it didn't really turn out the way that it was supposed to, but the intention was to do that. And that was based upon a, a Christian ethic, right? That was based yeah. upon the idea that— Malice towards none. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's the kind of question that we have to, we have to ask today— what? How do we stand up against evil? How do we stand up against wrong? And I think that today, I mean, this is the relevance of what we're going to be talking about in chapter thirteen today and the following weeks, because there's no there's no doubt about it. I mean, our our uh, our civil life in general, and maybe our particular government, is not always uh, favorable to Christian values. And if that's the case, the relevance of chapter thirteen of Romans becomes even more um, salient uh, in our in our lives. How are we going to relate to a government that is not disposed to Christian values? Yeah, chapter 13, when we come back after the break, um, it can be divided into four sections. Section um, verses 1 through 5 deal with being subject to governing authorities. Section 6 and 7, verses 6, what about taxes? As Christians, what about paying taxes in a non-Christian government? Verses 8 through 10 are what do we owe one another? Uh, you know, we, we owe our government. We owe the government things. Well, what about one another in a culture? Um, and then verses 11 through 14 it comes to this idea about this being the hour that it is, being putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh, you know, so all of this is uh, dealing with similar issues from the big down government down to our neighbor and then maybe down to the person looking at us eyeball to eyeball right in front of us. How do we deal with them? Who do they see? Do they see Jesus in our life? That's our call. Let's deal with this more when we come back from the break. I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host with co-host uh, Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're looking at Romans chapter 13, uh, the whole chapter. I'm not sure we'll get to the whole chapter today, but uh, in the previous half hour, uh, we looked at an email that kind of set the stage, I, I really feel, for this, the questions in this, because here Paul has the audacity to be writing to Roman Christians almost 2,000 years ago, uh, about their responsibility to their Roman government as Christians in Rome. And uh, the verses 1 through 5, he deals with being subject to the rulers in Rome. If you think about it, you know, that you've got Nero, I think, is probably the, the ruler at the time, time Paul's writing. Um, he's going to die under Nero, I think, Ken, if, if my mind, if my memory holds me correctly. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember exactly when you know, started his reign, but yeah, it was close to then. Yeah, I, I sure. think it was not long after the burning of Rome that Paul is martyred. So, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, so right, yeah. this is being written around that time, um, and then the issue of taxes, verses six and seven. You know, what about what about our taxes? What if we're not happy with taxes and? Uh, uh, and then verse 8 and 10 is owing one another things. What do we owe to our neighbor? Um, and uh, Paul deals with these issues in other places also, um, as well as Peter in First Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter deals with similar issues. And verses 11 through 14, as we mentioned earlier, um, is like a step back, almost a step back all the way to the beginning of verse twelve of chapter 12, to putting all this in context, almost as if Paul was uh, getting the same email that we got earlier that we were addressing. I mean, how important is any of this stuff? Does it make a difference uh, whether I live this out or not? And <clears throat> Ken, so let's begin with verses 1 through 5. Let me read those, and then I'll invite you if you would, to give a bigger context and to start addressing the issues. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Boy, there's, there's so much good stuff in there. And Ken, I was thinking, first of all, what came to my mind as I was reading that, that in this is a continuity with the Old Testament. Because I remember that place where David, I think in the middle of the night, as he's hiding from Saul, because um, Saul's after him. And in the middle of the night, Saul is asleep. And David has in his hands the opportunity to kill Saul. And he holds in his hands the spear. And he has right before him his solution to his life. But he doesn't kill Saul because David says, I cannot touch God's anointed. And so we see the continuity of this idea all the way now to Paul about God's anointed. People that are in power and recognizing that in the bigger picture, there's nothing happens apart from the will of God. So how do we live our lives in the midst of a corrupt government? Mm. Yeah, this passage uh, fits into our previous context in, in, in an important way because when Paul talks about, remember in chapter 12, we talked about the sacrificial life in Christ using our abilities and gifts to the building up of the body. And then this living of this life out in the world that is a life of mercy. Now Paul, as it were, gives us another piece of the puzzle. What does the Catholic Christian life look like in the world? Well, it looks like a life of obedience. Uh, that is, he's saying, obedient to the governing authorities. I think Paul here is probably painting a very um, ideal picture. Ideally, the rulers should be those whom good people do not need to fear because there's something good. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul talked about the fact that in conscience, even people that are pagans, know to some extent what's right and wrong. In other words, it's not only Catholic Christians or Christians in general, or let's say Jews and Christians, that know what's right and wrong. <clears throat> There's a natural sense of what's right and wrong, and people can perceive what that is. They don't always live by that, and the government doesn't always uh, govern in such a way in accord with that that good uh, but nevertheless, that's the general thing. So Paul is saying here, I think as a general way of life, live in accord with that government. And so, for example, uh, to use a modern example, we might say, well, there's no there's no eternal law of God that says you have to drive 60 miles an hour as opposed to 70 miles an hour. And that's true. But the point is that you submit yourself to the government as it is for the sake of conscience. In other words, for the sake of doing what is right 
and being the witness of Christ's presence in the world. And so to the extent that you can live in accord with the commands of God and the commands of the government, uh, do that. Now, we have to remember there was nothing Christian or Catholic about the government of Rome during the time that Paul was writing this. But he's saying to them that our purpose, our goal is to live our life peaceably in the kingdom or in the world so that the kingdom of God shines through. Paul actually uh, sort of echoes this in another text later on and is actually probably about 10 years later, as you were mentioning, when he was uh, under the authority of Nero in Rome, uh, whom undoubtedly he was um, killed uh, under, it was martyred under Nero's reign. Before that, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we should pray for all people, and especially for kings and those in authority. And notice the purpose, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and in sobriety or holiness. In other words, the purpose is that we are not to be rebels. We are not to be those in rebellion against the government, precisely because we want to bring people in peace and in harmony with God. And the best way to do that is to live in peace and harmony in society. Yeah, uh, your your reminder of, of uh, what we talked about earlier in Romans 1, 2, is so key because uh, when we see leaders all around the world who um, sometimes do very immoral things, very immoral acts, if you listen to their words and their explanations, their rationalizations as to why they're doing it, you can hear that they're dealing with behind all that a conscience That's they know what's wrong they've got to come up with some explanation though Mm. and it isn't just because everybody out there is telling them they're wrong so they're trying they you can see that they're dealing with an inner battle and of course Mm. if you've used those rationalizations all your life your conscience can become a dark can become blind Uh, we see that in uh, when our lord himself uh, one of the few times that we see in Scripture when our Lord was angry at the Pharisees because of their hardness of heart, when on a Sabbath day in a synagogue, our Lord heals a man's withered hand, and the Pharisees were only concerned about whether it could be done on, on, on Saturday or not. Uh, there, there seemed to be no sense that these religious leaders gave a a flying rip about that poor man. They only cared about these rules. And our Mm -hmm. Lord expressed great anger at their hardness of heart, their consciences had become hardened over Mm -hmm. time because of the way they understood obedience to God. Uh, I think you've just given us a a beautiful (laughs) prayer um, petition or intention for the rest of our Lent this year. Lord, help my conscience not to grow hard <laughs> so that I don't even see the truth in front of me. And this can happen. It can happen to bishops. It happened to priests. Um, and I, I fear within within the church, within the Catholic church in America, 
There are people whose consciences, I'm afraid, don't show any evidence of being soft with regard to the, the commands of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, our Lord, in his parables of the kingdom, um, uh, made some very important statements that the, the Jews of his day didn't want to hear. And one of them was the expectation that the continuity of the kingdom uh, that would be formed from the Old Testament church to the New Testament church wasn't a direct connect in the sense that everybody the old would automatically be a part of the new. That that all of his parables of the kingdom recognize that there's going to be good and bad fish, right? There's going to be wheat and tares. There's going to be some seed that's going to fall on rocky soil. Uh, there's only some that are going to hear and listen and discover and understand and, and follow. And that didn't just describe from old to new. That's the continuity for 2,000 years of the history of the church. You know, that there have been all the way through to today, good and bad popes, good and bad cardinals, good and bad bishops, good and bad priests, good and bad deacons, mm -hmm. good and bad laymen like you and me, Kent. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, but the issue in this passage here also is the fact that we have people in authority over us. What do we do? Uh, do we be subject? What, what, what about if our government, our governing leaders, uh, decide and pass immoral laws? Um, in verse 5, uh, for the sake of conscience is the issue. One must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So what does one do when those in authority pass laws set up structures that are immoral. This, this is why it's so important for a Catholic Christian, and in fact for anyone, to really understand the difference between a, a just and an unjust law, or the difference between a law based upon custom versus a law based upon God's law, reflecting God's law. So, for example... You know, stoplights and stopping at stoplights and so forth. That is a custom. That is a man-made law. But behind it is the divine law of preservation of life. And, and, and we have to understand that that's what is really at issue in, for example, in the driving laws. And not that every driving law is right or just. I mean, is it, is it really necessary to have seat belts? Well, I don't know that we need a seat belt law necessarily, but do we need laws that protect people in somehow in general from driving? Yes, of course, of course we do. This issue of civil disobedience has been one that has been explored even before the New Testament was ever written. Uh, think of that great play by the uh, tragedian um, Sophocles uh, in ancient Greece. Uh, by it's called the play's called Antigone, where Antigone, where Antigone uh, wants to, wants to bury her brother, who has been disgraced by the king Creon, who decreed that her brother would not be buried because he was on the losing side in the war, and she is bound and determined to give him the funeral rites because. That would be a disgrace. It would be a sin against the gods. So this question of doing what is right versus doing what is wrong, 
uh, or that the government may demand is a very difficult line, a very thin line to walk. Yeah, in fact, verses 3 and 4 deal with um, uh, do what is good and you will receive his approval for his God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. And in that sense, when you, you use the, 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 the traffic laws, you know, it's for the good of the culture, the good of all people. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the corporate consciences of our, have tried to figure out how to live out, you know, how do we live together in, in issues. But, mm-hmm. but we also recognize that there's a spiritual battle going on behind all this. And that sometimes the, the whispers of the, uh, of the evil one has led leaders together uh, over time, little by little, uh, mm-hmm. to push envelopes on things that 100 years ago would never have been considered possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it strikes me yeah. in that when you read books like uh, Orwell's uh, 1984 or Brave New World, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, they were written in the, I think right, Ken, in the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, looking so. forward to uh, their vision of a future uh, as they saw their trajectory of culture at the time. And of course, here we are way beyond 1984. Uh, and some of the things that they projected in their futuristic writing hasn't come true. But there have been many things in, especially morality in our culture that they never dreamed, never crossed their mind to include in their writing of the future. The challenges to marriage and to family and to life and morality and right and wrong that never crossed Mm -hmm. our grandparents' mind have not only become the pressured tolerance of our culture, but have become the laws of our land. And on top of that, we even see Christian denominations now, almost as if they're taking verses 1 through 5 of 13 to be, well, if this is what the government says, then it must be all right. And so we have completely, we have entire Christian denominations overturning the understanding of marriage and relationships and morality uh, conforming to culture, going against what Paul says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, almost in obedience to what they believe thir- uh, chapter 13, 1 through 5 imply. Mm-hmm. And or so. Maybe they're just, yeah. You know, how do you follow conscience when, uh, on the one hand, we're not to conform to culture, but yet on the other hand, we have govern- governing authorities passing laws that go completely contrary to what our faith teaches on the issues of abortion and marriage and contraception, uh, euthanasia, uh, all these rising issues that, you know, although I would say Paul didn't even conceive of when he wrote this, although we do know, Ken, from your own translation, the Didache, that abortion was an issue back then, and it was considered wrong uh, back then. Well, that's. I was just going to say that when we reflect upon Paul's words here in, in verses one through five about being uh, in subjection to, obedient to government 
um, that Paul was very well aware already, too, that there were practices that the Romans were engaged in uh, that the Christian could in no way countenance. We see that, although the documents come from a little bit later period, um, I have no doubt that it was true in Paul's day, and that is that, that when they didn't want children, uh, they would they would just throw them into the into the woods and let the wild animals eat them. And what Christians did is they would follow them and they would re, they would rescue the children and they would bring them back because instinctively those Christians those Catholics were living by the instinct of preserving life. And isn't it amazing? That we're exactly in that situation. Day we have been in that situation since 1973, and Roe v. Wade, and now there's even a deeper, a possible attack upon our culture uh, of the family. I'm thankful that Pope Francis has recently uh, come out very strongly and questioned this. Uh, you know, the the ideology of what's called gender theory, right? The idea that 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 gender is a flexible idea that you know you can be any gender you want to be regardless of the way your body is and um and he's challenged that um i i, I hope and i pray and this is where paul's words in second first uh, timothy chapter two are important that we should pray for those in authority i, I pray to god that our Supreme Court in the upcoming decisions about the legality of same-sex marriage is going to rule in favor of what is good and natural. Uh, if they don't, uh, Romans chapter 13 is going to become quite a challenge for us. Well, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, traditionally, we've recognized that the battle is between the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you have the world, um, the voices from our, from all, and when you think about every individual person fighting the same battle, every individual person has the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so there's the, the voices of of the devil in our in our in our mind, trying to shape us, trying to help us or hurt us, understand uh, what our flesh is telling us, our, our passions. And then we live in a world of a gazillion people fighting the same battle. Some are more aware of it than others. And so when our, when our desires call us and try to convince us against our conscience, when our, when our flesh tries to argue against the conscience. You know, Ken, when you and I grew up, we watched cartoons as kids. It was portrayed as a, as a, as a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, you know, in those comics, uh, cartoons, you know. And, um, and the devil laughs because then we have this image in our mind. It's just a joke. You know, those, that devil and that angel talking to us, and eh, that's just a joke. Those are, and that's the, no, that's the reality of life. And so we have a whole world that's oblivious to the spiritual battle, and they're listening to their passions, their desires, as the voice of who they are. You know, they're convinced, this is who I am. And so they're listening to the passions, and they're completely making provision for the flesh. They're letting the flesh define who they are. And the devil laughs. 
And as more and more people are blind to how this feeds them from within, we have a whole culture being dragged down that path. And so to a certain extent, what Paul is saying in these passages is screaming to the, the very issues we're dealing with today. And well, that, that, Go ahead. That, that, well, it just reminds me, um, the, what you said earlier is so uh, important here, that Paul is tying together both, the chapter is really 12, 13, uh, and 13, uh, at the end when he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, what he's calling us back to is the, word, is the words he began with in chapter 12 of living out as a living, uh, living, presenting yourselves as a living sacrifice to God because the, the answer doesn't lie in externals, be it warfare or be it um, laws imposed upon society. It comes from being transformed from the inside. And that's the thing that that's why the Catholic and truly Christian faith is so vital to our culture. Our, we need to be calling people not just to obedience to external laws for the sake of fear, but being transformed where their conscience is being formed by putting on Christ and living in accord with truth, with goodness, with beauty. Uh, because it is pleasing to God, first of all, and then it will in general be pleasing to those who have their hearts set on goodness. So, in other words, the, the transformation that's needed is not a social engineering. It's an inner transformation of the heart. Yeah, I was thinking of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, when he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. You know, this whole struggle with standing up for conscience, even if it means taking a stand against a law that we know by our formed conscience is immoral, to take a step back, the ability for us to see that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Our call to recognize who Jesus is has been a gift. And so making our life a living sacrifice is living out that gift of grace, which is what Paul talks about in verse 14, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gift of that grace in living it out. We'll pick up there next week, Ken. Thank you for joining us. We've run out of time. We'll, we'll start right at the beginning of thir chapter 13 and go to the end. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. See you again next week.